Welcome to Parenting Teens with Dr. Cam, a podcast about navigating adolescence without losing our minds. Each week, I guide you around the teenage landmines with practical tips, simple solutions, and words of encouragement. I'm your host, Dr. Cam. Let's get on with the show. Welcome, parents. Are you baffled about why your teen is so anxious? Do you want to know how to help them? If so, this episode is for you. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, 32% of teens suffered from an anxiety disorder in the last year, and this is compared to about 19% of adults. And the numbers keep growing. So what's going on? Today, I'm joined by Dr. Loretta Bruning, author of many personal development books, including Habits of a Happy Brain, Retrain Your Brain to Boost Your Serotonin, Dopamine, Oxytocin, and Endorphin Levels. Yes, please. She is also the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute, which helps thousands of people make peace with their inner mammal. In this episode, Dr. Bruning is going to teach us how anxiety shows up in the brain and how we can use that information to help our teens and ourselves manage anxiety more effectively. Welcome, Loretta. How are you? Thank you for joining us today. Hi, so nice to be here. Absolutely. So please start by sharing a brief backstory. What inspired you to help people understand their inner mammal better? And what exactly does that mean? Sure. So when I stumbled on this information, it was very helpful to me. And I was really amazed that I had never learned it. So I was a college professor for 25 years in another field, and I had always studied psychology and never found a really satisfying explanation of the brain until I stumbled on little bits of information about the chemicals that make us feel good and bad and how they work in monkeys. And I was amazed that the same chemicals that we have are in monkeys and animals can't withhold their reaction or rationalize it with words so you get to see exactly what the chemical does and it was so obviously what we are doing to ourselves oh that's fascinating so now you're taking that information which it is it's like here's how our brain is reacting and responding once we learn that how does that help us So these chemicals evolved to promote survival. Our brain did not evolve to just be happy all the time. We grew up and we evolved in a world where we had to forage for food constantly and avoid predators, as people often hear, and worry about having enough food for the winter. So we evolved a brain to turn on happy chemicals when we see an opportunity to meet a survival need and to turn on, excuse me, threat chemicals when we see a potential obstacle to meeting a survival need. And this is just a simple navigation system that works without the the, um, conscious verbal brain that a good feeling motivates you to go forward and a bad feeling motivates you to pull back. And that's how an animal navigates the world. And that's what we're doing in our limbic brain, which is underneath our verbal brain and actually is the connection between your verbal brain and your body. So your verbal brain doesn't have direct access to your body. It goes through your inner mammal. And it's always working. (laughs) That explains a lot. So I think when we look at the, you know, survival in the animals, it's one of those, 
survival and threats are pretty obvious. It's like, I'm going to be eaten, right? I'm going, something is going to physically harm me. Um, teenagers, and even mm -hmm. everyone, but teenagers are really struggling with anxiety more so now than ever. How do we explain that when it comes from this perspective of threat? Um, so threat chemicals make you feel like you're threatened whenever there's an obstacle to something that you think is going to meet a need. So a bad hair day is a survival threat from your mammal brain's perspective because in the animal world, you have to compete for reproductive opportunity. And when there's an obstacle to what it takes in, let's call it, <clears throat> excuse me, let's call it animal politics right. to, um, to get that reproductive opportunity, then you don't pass on your genes. And so it's a threat to your survival. So this is how our brain reacts to the world. This is how it's always been. And humans have always had to learn to manage this brain that we have, especially in today's world of abundance, where we're not busy doing a real threat activity. So we take this big engine and apply it to tiny obstacles. Right. They feel extremely scary and threatening to us. And then explain to us a little bit what happens in the brain when we when we see something or experience a threat. Walk us through what's going on. Sure. So um, this threat chemical cortisol is released. I mean, if you, if you want to go in more detail, you probably heard about adrenaline. Oh, yeah. So adrenaline is just really the alarm system that says, pay attention, something important is happening. So if I hear a noise in the middle of the night and I'm like, what's that? That's adrenaline. But then sometimes when you hear a noise, you say, oh, it's just, you know, a cat outside banging the wall or something. So when you decide that that noise is bad for you, that's cortisol. So your brain is constantly making a decision. Is this good for me or is this bad for me? And cortisol is that feeling that it's bad for you. So that's intellectualized. That's, you know, you've made the decision, but you make it with neural pathways built from your past cortisol. So neurons connect whenever these chemicals flow, because that's how our brain learns from experience. So anything that triggered your cortisol in the past turns it on faster today. And cortisol lasts in your body for about an hour. So during that time, it's hyper alert to negatives. So I use the simple example that when a gazelle smells a predator, then it doesn't just run. It has to find the predator first so it knows which way to run. So it's looking for information about threats. So that's basically what people are doing is the cortisol turns on because like, Oh, last time I didn't get invited to that party. So now I'm hyper alert for rejection. So once I turn on the cortisol, every everybody, I say, oh, they're rejecting me. They're rejecting oh. me. They're rejecting me. So that's what people are doing. Yeah. So the more we experience it, the stronger those neural pathways become, the faster we then go to that assumption, right? Okay, so we're seeing a lot of teenagers that have created a lot of strong neural pathways where it comes to rejection's a big one, school is a huge one, um, getting in trouble from parents. Like there's a lot of things, um, a lot of people, you know, we call it, there's trauma. There's a lot of different things that have created these cortisol pathways. 
what do we do now? We've got a child that is now having a panic attack when a test is coming up or when they have to meet somebody new or I'm, we're seeing a lot of this for a lot of variety of reasons. How do we as parents help our kids through this anxiety? Well, um, your question implies an answer, which is that the <laughs> parent should help them through that. And um, if I may try a different alternative. I would love that. Yes. <laughs> what if you don't try to help them through that? What if you've already tried to help them through that? And that has led to a certain loop where they're not wanting to feel pain because you don't want them to feel pain. And it's natural that you don't want them to feel pain. So here's a simple way to think of it. All through human history, people didn't have enough food. They didn't have enough warmth. And they desperately struggled to give their kids what they didn't have. And now that we have all of this, the only thing we don't have is like we, we stress ourselves out. So we're so desperate for our kids to be happy every minute that we want to, quote, give them that. But you can't give them that because our brain is designed to not produce happiness every minute. So by taking charge of their happiness, it almost gets in the way of them building the, the, the skill. Like, and I have to say, I just spent time with my two-year-old grandson. Mm -hmm. So it was just a reminder of how we are born with this brain that creates a lot of, you know, <laughs> and then they have to learn to manage it. And if you offer to manage it for you, they'll give it to you. Yeah, you make me happy. Yes. And then they don't learn to manage it. That's so true. And then they don't build those connections on managing their emotions, right? Because we yes, haven't given exactly. them the opportunity to do so. Exactly. And as a parent, uh, it is one of the most difficult things is to see our kids suffering and anxious and feeling bad. And it is the knee-jerk response to make them feel better. And I think one of the things I see a lot too is that have feeling the need to feel better for your parents causes more anxiety. <laughs> like that is a threat in itself or feeling the need to like fake it, right? So then they hide when they're feeling bad because they don't feel like it's okay to feel bad. And then we don't deal it. And then they panic because they have so much of this pent up and they don't know what to do with it. Yeah, but also another way to think about that is um, sometimes um, putting a good face on for your parents has value because it's, it trains you to say, oh, I, I can hold it together, mm. you know? Um, because think about how like not holding it together, being stressed has become a tool for social bonding. This is the way people make friends by saying, oh, I'm so suffering. And in a certain subculture, if that's the bonding tool, then you effectively lose your social support network unless you play along with this, oh, I'm, I'm in so much pain. And you never even learn another way to see yourself to feel yourself so any stepping stone toward um showing you oh yeah i i can't do that i, I is, is okay yeah so if we're a parent and we're watching our kids have getting very anxious which 
becomes a threat to us as a parent and we become anxious, right? So now we're both in yes. that mammal brain. Yes. yes now, yes. what do we, what do we want to try to do? And even more so, what do we want to avoid doing? Cause I see a lot of people kind of getting into this emotional cycle, right? Um, yeah. What, yeah. What can you recommend parents do in that situation? We want to do something. We have to do something. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm. <laughs> so first I want to say that I learned all of this information after my baby left for college. Mm. So I cannot say that I did it better. So, but I'm going to tell you one sort of light bulb moment that made me realize what I was doing wrong. <laughs> Um, when your teen sort of reveals too much, maybe. Um, I said something casually to my son about having some paper due on Monday. And he said something to the effect of, how could it be due on Monday? And I said, well, Monday is the 10th. It's always been due on the 10th. And he said, yeah, but I thought if it were so soon, you would have been more upset. <laughs> right? So so he needed my upset as as the motivator, as the engine yeah. to keep his own time clock. Yeah. And I pulled back at that moment. I said, whoa, this is not the, because then you know that when you get upset, then they're going to resist. They're going to blame. They're going to use your anxiety as the tool for not taking the action and not addressing their own fear about the work. So everyone has fear. You cannot have a kid without fear. We all have you know, performance fear, social fear. It's fine. And now health fear, you know, people. So let me tell you another important aspect. It's called mirror neurons. We all have mirror neurons that are design, designed to learn from others. So your child is always mirroring your emotions and you're mirroring their emotions. You're just making it worse. But to remember that this whole system evolved for good reason, don't think of it as a disorder. So I'll explain a good reason for this. So in the monkey world, protein is scarce and certain monkeys have learned to crack open nuts. You've probably heard about okay. this. And it's very, very difficult to do. It takes them years to learn. And if they don't crack them open, they don't get to eat them. And if they don't get protein, they don't um, reproduce effectively. So it's it has life or death significance yeah. and yet if you don't crack open your own nuts you don't eat you don't get them nobody says oh here honey i'll crack nuts open for you no it doesn't work that way so if you try and fail and you try and fail and um david attenborough the famous nature documentary guy he just videoed you know hours of them trying and failing and when i watch that you know i feel the stress but then I have to separate my from myself from it. But so a couple of amazing things. Mirror neurons is when I watch you succeed at cracking open a nut, I internally activate your emotions and that helps me get it. Okay. Like I learn how to do it from watching you. So your child can learn to calm themselves by you calming yourself. And they're never going to admit, they're never going to come out and say, oh, thank you, mom, for being so self-controlled. Maybe they want you to get upset, 
but it's not working. So you show them your self-control. And if they say mean things like you don't care about me or something, it's like, then you could say one line, I care about you and I have confidence in your ability to manage your brain. I know it's hard to manage this brain. We've all inherited it. It's a challenge for everyone. You, they don't give them victim status. Like you got a worse brain than other people and your challenge is harder. Yeah, we do a lot of that too, right? We provide a lot of excuses. Um, and then once we've got excuses, we write off the need to try rather than an explanation of why it might be difficult. And that just provides us information to help us rather than a reason to give up. And I see that a lot too. Yes, exactly. And teachers are involved. Like, So here's a simple thing that animals trainer, animal trainers never reward the unwanted behavior, only reward the wanted behavior. Yes. So if, if you go into a teacher and say, I can't take the test today because I'm too stressed and the teacher rewards that, then you get more of that. Yes, exactly. And even um, focusing, even if it's not necessarily a reward, but a negative interaction and you're always focusing on what they're doing wrong, that gets more attention so you get more of it. And I see this a lot where when kids do the right, the, the right, I'm putting that in air quotes, the right behavior, the behavior that we desire, we kind of take it for granted. We're like, yeah, they're supposed to be doing that. So what do I say? But the second they do something even remotely wrong, boom, we jump on that and it becomes our whole focus. And then we wonder why we keep seeing that same behavior over and over again. Exactly, exactly. And though one may say that they're doing it out of love and concern, they're really doing it to relieve their own anxiety, because maybe you think some mother down the block has a better child, and yes. you think she's looking down at you, and she's thinking you're not getting enough performance out of your child. And you're so let's talk about the social comparison piece. Of Please, this. let's. This is a biggie. <laughs> so, um, Social comparison is another natural mammalian function. It's been known for a century that mammals have hierarchies, social hierarchies in their groups. And the higher up ones get more mating opportunity. I'm condensing a complex topic. And so um, I'd be happy and to- And whenever you throw in the whole mating thing, parents are like, good, I don't want my child to mate yet. So like, yes, yes, but, but the point- Yes. Yeah, yeah so- um, it, it, the brain creates life or death feelings about um, the perception that you have low social status. Um, but even a juvenile monkey, when it reaches for food near a big monkey, the big monkey will bite it. Like, you, how dare you reach for my banana? So in order to not get bitten, a little monkey learns to constantly compare itself to others and not to assert unless it feels that it's in the one-up position. And that is serotonin. When I compare myself to others, if I feel like, oh, I got it going on, that's a little squirt of serotonin. If I feel like, oh my God, I'm such a loser, that's a squirt of cortisol. So that's what we're doing to ourselves. And mom, you're doing that to yourself. Dads are doing it to themselves. Teachers are doing it to themselves. All their peers are doing it. Everybody does it. So it's a frustrating aspect of life and we need to learn to manage it. And because we don't have other real needs like getting firewood for the winter, 
we obsess over this minutia. Yeah. So how do we learn to manage it? What can we do? Sure. First, if I might say, I've written two books about that part. Um, in, in addition to, I think you managed my, did you mention my core book? But yeah. I have another book called Status Games, Why We Play and How to Stop. And another book called I Mammal. So I'll, um, I'll put the links in the, in the show notes. Good. So um, how can we manage it? So the first thing, again, with the mirror neurons is your child is watching the way you are managing it. Um, and they have been their whole life. So you are doing the social comparison dance and you are worried about what will so-and-so think. And everybody has, let's call it the cousin who's doing better than them and having that bad feeling. That bad feeling is a real physical thing, cortisol in your body, but you triggered it. Don't think they are putting you down, but you put yourself down. And the simple solution is to focus on your strengths rather than your weaknesses, but to put yourself up without putting others down. Uh -huh. Now, when I say focus on your strengths, we know that this can lead to a kind of grandiosity, which is not helpful, which we call, you know, the culture where every child has to get a trophy. Right. So realism is essential. And um, so the point is, self-acceptance to say, I know that I'm comparing myself to others. I know that everyone's doing it and everyone's getting frustrated about it. I can't be good at everything, but when I focus on other people's strengths and my weaknesses, I create a survival threat feeling in my own brain. So you got to learn that. And then you can't take it away from your kid because every kid on earth has had that. Yes. And here's the thing. If you have a crush on someone and they don't like you back, I know it's painful, but if that's the worst pain you feel, it's because we've grown up in a world without lice and maggots and rats and snakes. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's Although in the our school district, lice does go around. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think um, this ability, I think the, the big thing I want to just keep pulling out of this is that we as parents try to control and help our kids control their behavior and we don't pay enough attention to our behavior and how we're displaying it so that they can learn to mirror it and so and i've seen you know we we get angry and yell at them for yelling and being disrespectful we right we do that a lot um and so we're telling them one thing and showing them another we um one of them too, I, I see a lot is they demand, parents will demand their kids or tell their kids they need to trust them, but give their kids no trust at all, right? There's no trust going the other way. And how can you ask a child to trust you when you don't trust them? Yes. Right? And another big thing is having confidence in your child's skills. Yeah. So if you are thinking, oh, my poor little baby having to go out into the world and take a test or go to a dance, then they they don't have confidence in their own skills because you don't have confidence in their own skills. I think even, even bigger than that, what I see is not the confidence of the confidence that they will make a good decision. Parents are terrified and they see their kids making dangerous, bad decisions. And 
our reaction is to just shut it down, take over control, take away all control of theirs, saying you can't make a good decision. What does this do? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I do want to sympathize with the parent because yeah. you do see them going into a situation where there is potential danger. Terrifying. And, you know, in the past, you know, people had 10 kids and everybody lost a few of them, you know? So wait, I know it sounds crass, but like today it would be, you know, it's such a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm sympathizing with that. Um, but um, a big thing is for um, a parent to be, so some parents in the past, you know, we've said parents were too busy with their own thing, but some parents are not busy enough with their own thing. Mm -hmm. So the threat of your child doing this bad thing is like constantly on your mind when you should, you should be focused on something else because they're almost um, torturing you with it. You know, they're, they're almost giving you a performance. Again, I, I just spent time with a toddler and like when I saw the, the manipulation that this toddler could do like I couldn't believe, like that's pretty sophisticated thinking yeah. at two years old they can already manipulate you so if you are busy doing something you love and then in the time that you have with your child if you can share a hobby and focus on something you both love then it would create a grounds for positive interaction and then they'll bring that with them that that sense of trust um so they don't have, feel like they have to prove themselves in a <clears throat> manipulative way yeah i i think one thing that i see a lot is that we kind of see parenting as um trying to control and organize and be super focused on how our kids do it and what our kids do and just really controlling that when that creates disconnect and frustration and mistrust and anxiety because kids start going well obviously I can't do it or else my parents would let me do it and since I'm not allowed to do it or I get in trouble for the way I do it yeah. they start becoming more and more anxious about their own abilities and then they give up rather than parenting from a place <laughs> of that's my child my child's decisions are my child's decisions I'm going to help and guide my child and I'm going to model for my child but I'm not my child yes, yes and that separation is very difficult for people to make yeah, yeah, because your mirror neurons are going into your child and this is your second chance to get it right yeah. and to, to heal whatever pain you have left over from your childhood. You're one. thinking, this is my chance to finally, and I and your conscious brain is saying, I want to protect my child from that pain. They're not necessarily feeling that pain. You're projecting that onto them. They're feeling some other pain, but then there's the universal pain that we all have which is, here's the thing about that I explained about serotonin. There's a natural urge to be special. Mm -hmm. And I'm on a planet with 8 billion other people who want to be special. So everyone is disappointed in that urge to be special. So I have to learn to live with it. And my kid has to learn to live with that. Yeah, I, 
I think that's really important. So what is, so two questions. First of all, how do people find you? I'm at innermammalinstitute.org, innermammalinstitute.org. So all my books, a lot of free resources, videos, and um, links to all my social media, and even a contact and a training program. Oh, wonderful. Okay. And then what is the one takeaway you want to make sure parents have from this episode? So um, you can't make your child happy, but if you focus on making yourself happy, you set a good example. That, I could not say that better. That's perfect. Thank you so much, Loretta. I am so grateful you could join us today. Well, I'm so glad because I was really worried that you were not going to like what I had to say. No, I love what you have to say. This is great. And I I love that you come from a different perspective. I think it really helps. Um, It it gives people another perspective and another way to kind of grasp a lot of what I've been, what I try to say. Great, great, great. Um, right? Yeah, yes. Absolutely. Yes. 100% with you. Thank and you. And thank you, parents, for taking time out of your busy day to spend with us. I really appreciate you, too. If you want to learn more about how to help your teens thrive, you can grab my top 10 secrets for raising teens at askdrcam.com slash parenting tips. Until next time, have a peaceful, positive, calm day. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining me today on Parenting Teens with Dr. Cam. Make sure to visit my website, www.askdrcam.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show again. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, I'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, and hey, why not share it with a friend too? Be sure to tune in to my next episode. And remember, parenting teens may not be easy, but with my help, it can be a whole lot easier than this.